Today from the Global Lane, worldwide pandemic. Is COVID-19 God's judgment on America and the world? For us to ascribe that is way, way beyond our pay grade. Blaming China for the viral outbreak and the World Health Organization for mismanagement and deceit. Stressed and unhappy with distance learning, when will college students return to campus? Jailed in Sudan, rescued by prayer. VOM's Peter Yashik on Christian persecution during the coronavirus crisis. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Pastors arrested for holding church services. Church attendees ticketed at drive-in church services. Pro-life counselors arrested or ticketed because governors consider their work non-essential. Christians are under fire on the home front. And a growing number of protests and rallies at state capitals show many Americans are growing restless and impatient, some even angry over the shutdown. So how should Christians respond during a time such as this? Well, joining us to share some thoughts is Dr. Richard Land. Dr. Land is president of the Southern Evangelical Seminary and executive editor of the Christian Post. He's an author, a radio host, adjunct professor, and is considered one of the most influential Christian leaders in America. Dr. Land, it's so good to have you with us. So this is a global pandemic. People in many nations are on lockdown. So how should Christians around the world respond to this? I expect that you see opportunity here in the midst of a crisis. Well, I do. Um, you know, I think that, that we, this is where the tension comes into play between um, being obedient to the civil magistrate for conscience sake, and at the same time, um, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar and unto the Lord that which is the Lord's, which is our ultimate obedience, and, and he's our ultimate authority. And uh, I think some of the governors have gone way too far. I, 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 I've been a little shocked, actually, at the authoritarian streak in some of our governors and some of our mayors and some of our sheriffs uh, in, in the way they've interpreted these orders in a very, as, as the attorney general said, in a very draconian manner. I think we should uh, certainly um, try to heed the government's admonitions to uh, have social distancing and to uh, not uh, needlessly expose other people or endanger other people. Um, but at the same time, you know, when you start trying to give tickets to people at, at, at drive-in church services where they're not even getting out of their cars, um, that's, that's way, way too far. Um, and, and I think that um, uh, we, we need to protest against that. And, and, and I, I'd say go to court. I think if we go to court, we'll win uh, because of the First Amendment, which says that we have a guaranteed right um, to worship and to assemble. What do you say to people who say that COVID-19 is God's judgment on a sinful world. Do you believe that or might it be something else? Well, I believe Romans chapter 11, where the apostle Paul tells us that, that uh, the ways of God are beyond our understanding and who can, who can know them. So it's way above my pay grade to say whether or not God allowed the coronavirus uh, epidemic or pandemic in order as a judgment. Um, you know, if he did, that's his prerogative as God. But for us to ascribe that is way, way beyond our pay grade. Uh, what I can say is that, um, that as Christians, we can adopt the attitude of Joseph when uh, he was sold into slavery by his brothers, sold into Egypt. Uh, he said, you know, what you intended for evil, God redeemed and used for good. And he used it as a way to prepare um, a, a, a place for my people to be fed when they were in famine. So uh, Romans 8.28 tells us all things are being worked together for the good of those that love God and are the called according to his purposes. 
So, um, you know, we can we can redeem this. Um, I, people have been shaken out of a false sense of security uh, in America about uh, where their security really comes from as they've lost their jobs and they've lost loved ones and they've gotten sick and they've, they're exposed to the danger of getting sick. Uh, Bible sales are up. Um, uh, worship attendance is up. Uh, I have several colleagues who tell me they have more people coming to the virtual services than ever came to the regular services in church. We saw that uh, after 9-11, did we not? Uh, Bibles were selling we out of bookstores. People were flocking into the churches. Then a few weeks later, everything went back to normal. So do you think we'll see revival this time or we'll be back to business as usual? Well, we don't know. I mean, this is more widespread. Um, this pandemic is going to cause more permanent change in American society than the 9-11 attacks did. Um, virtually everything has changed. First of all, um, the move from analog to digital in our society, which has been proceeding at a pretty rapid pace, is now in a dead sprint to the end. Um, you know, uh, retail stores are closing down and going bankrupt. Neiman Marcus is going bankrupt. And, and, and Amazon's hiring 150,000 workers. Um, the, in education where I am, it's, it's, it, it, it has completely supercharged what was already taking place. Um, you know, we, we are, we've been doing a lot of online and, and live streaming classes, and so we were prepared for it, but, um, and we're gonna, we're gonna embrace it because um, students who, who had to go to high school online because the schools have been closed, and their parents have been exposed to, to the uh, remarkable opportunities of the internet, and they now are far more comfortable about what can be done, far more uh, aware of what can be done online, in the way we go to school, in the way we shop, in the way we interact with each other. Government's accepting homeschooling. So yeah, oh yeah. Finally, it's hard to be salt and light when many people are still on lockdown and they have stay-at-home orders. So how can we Christians make a difference at this time? Well, you know, we can, first of all, they, they got a lot more time on their hands. We can reach them through the internet. We can reach them um, with messages. We can reach out to them if they are one of the at-risk groups. We can, do, we can come by and volunteer to go shopping for them, uh, to pick up groceries for them. Um, you know, the, there, there are lots of things we can do um, to reach out and be salt and light. Um, and I think that's our, our responsibility and our obligation to do so, to, show, to do it because we love people, because Jesus loves them. We need to be doing everything we can to reach those people and tell them there is hope and their hope's not to be found in their job. Their hope's not to be found in anything in this world. Their hope is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That's, that's the hope of the world forever. Okay, Dr. Richard Land, president of Southern Evangelical Seminary, we appreciate you. Thank you, sir, for your time and insights. Well, thank you, and thank you for your, your ministry and your witness to the gospel. The United States has contributed nearly $900 million to the World Health Organization within the past two years. Now, President Trump says it's time to suspend the aid, about $400 million this year. The president says the organization has favored China in the COVID-19 pandemic. He wants the assistance halted temporarily until a review of mismanagement can be conducted. Well, joining us with some thoughts on this is visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, Roger Bate. Roger, it's good to have you with us. So the president's decided to pull this $400 million in aid. Uh, is his action justified? And if so, why? Well, it's great to be with you. Um, the World Health Organization is an essential body that has been very badly run for a very long time. Uh, investigation of it in general would be useful, 
just simply because uh, unaccountable, uh, largely unaccountable bodies like many UN agencies require regular auditing and maintenance, if you like. And when it comes to COVID-19, there is no doubt that there has been some serious missteps by many players, not just at the World Health Organization. Um, so I think the, the action is um, warranted and, um, and actually I would say overdue. Well, what specifically did uh, the WHO do with China? I, I understand that there were some warnings from Hong Kong, Taiwan. Seems the president and some others believe that uh, the WHO was involved in covering for the Chinese mishandling and untruthfulness about the viral outbreak. Uh, I, well, let, let's start. Let's start with the, what the WHO is. The World Health Organization is a member state organization. It is funded by the member states. The U.S., China, Britain, France are probably the largest donors, and um, therefore it has a difficult, sometimes difficult, role to play. It has to not pander to countries, but has to understand the sensitivities in any political announcements about potential dangerous situations. So, therefore, there is some sympathy I may have with the way that the WHO has to handle things. Having said that, their first duty should be to public health, and there is no doubt that they cozied up a little too closely to the Chinese regime, were not robust enough. In fact, they were more robust in 2003 with the SARS outbreak uh, than they were this time. And I think had the WHO been uh, more open, more transparent about the, the danger of this disease, I think the actions both within China and more globally would have been faster and hence the death toll and economic impact would have been uh, would have been lower. Well, they're supposed to uh, deal with health and it seems like they've become very political over the years. So this isn't the first time this has happened, right? Tell us how this has happened in the past. Well, the, the World Health Organization has been around for 70 odd years and in its initial 30, 25, 30 years, it did you know, yeoman work in inoculating people from disease and going around the world, and I would say largely helping. But from the mid-70s, it has tried to embrace a more holistic and unfortunately more socialist take on, on healthcare generally. And I think what it has done, therefore, it has it's got closer and closer to many of the uh, left-leaning governments of the world, at least rhetorically, even if they're more despotic than, than uh, more of an ideal of socialism. And so I think that what's happened is that um, they are, they have always been political. They've always had to be political and we should understand that they are a UN body. But the problem is take the, the one China policy. Taiwan is, does not have a seat at the table because Beijing insists that Taiwan comes under their remit, which means that the WHO by its own internal rules cannot deal with Taiwan directly, which is insane because Taiwan has often been the first to announce problems when it's come to things like SARS and um, were the first, as far as I know, to warn about human-to-human -human transmission of COVID-19. So WHO has some cover in saying, well, this is the United Nations one China policy, but at the same time, they should, put, um, should be putting public health first uh, and saying, look, if the Taiwanese have got something really useful to add here, we're going to have to talk to them, even if Beijing doesn't like it. And they did not do that, which is arguably the, the, one of their biggest problems here. Roger, I've traveled around the world. I've seen firsthand a lot of good the WHO has done, especially vaccinating and helping to improve the health of children and others in impoverished countries. Uh, shouldn't they get some help from us in doing that good work, or should they not? The problem is for the emerging markets, and as you pointed out, the, the vital importance of vaccinations to children in emerging markets, it's become less and less of a priority. 
So it's not that, that the WHO shouldn't exist and shouldn't be funded. The problem is that more and more of their budget has gone to things that are really not global health issues. And we don't need the global health organization. I mean, the global health entity, the World Health Organization to deal with. So yes, we should fund it. But right, but it, but it has been mismanaged. Um, it's been largely, you know, increasingly corrupt over the over the decades. And therefore, an investigation of what's been done uh, before we start paying money again, I think, is actually warranted. So, if this were to the uh, the ending of U.S. taxpayer funding of the WHO, I would be against it. But a sixty-day moratorium and an investigation of how WHO is is running its COVID work, I think, is warranted. Okay, we'll see where this uh, review goes. Roger Bate, visiting scholar of the American Enterprise Institute, thank you for your insights and time. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Jobless and forced to leave campus and learn from a distance because of COVID-19. Many college students are feeling stressed and uncertain about the future. Some colleges and universities say their campuses will remain vacant this fall. They've already announced that classes will take place only online. An Axios poll finds that 77% of college students surveyed say distance learning is worse or much worse than in-person classes. 13% say they'll take a break from college if distance learning continues next year. Well, joining us with some insights is Tim Gibson. He's president of the King's College in New York City. Tim, colleges and universities are shifting the higher education experience now to distance learning because of COVID-19. Is this going to be the new norm for most this fall? What do you expect will happen? Yeah, Gary, thanks for the chance to come on and talk with you about it. Um, you know, it is a distinct possibility. As you mentioned, uh, some colleges have already made that decision that they're going to remain in an online format through the rest of this calendar year. At the King's College, we've not chosen to do that. The, the need isn't quite there yet, but we are planning for some contingencies. And really, it goes down a, about three different lanes. Uh, the first is we're planning to be back in class, in person, in August, just as we would any other year. The trends in New York City right now are relatively positive in terms of the coronavirus and the, the ways that we're combating that virus. And so we're optimistic that we'll be able to do just that. But at the, at the same time, we want to be prepared to continue the online live distance learning that we've had to shift to for this spring semester. It's, it's not the best uh, format. We know that. We know that the in-person experience is far and away the best way for students to live, to live and to learn. Um, and so we want to get back to that as quickly as we can, particularly here in New York City, because of the opportunities that are around. But the third option, then, is we're trying to meet families where they're at. Um, not all families are going to be comfortable with their student coming back to New York City. And so we have our what we call our King's Crossover Program, in which a student can take up to two years of the academic education at, at King's at home and then join us for the last two years on campus and get the relational networking and the internship opportunities that are so valuable in New York City. So it really hasn't been that great of a shift for your college. Now, You've seen the Axios survey, 77% of college students polled said online learning is much worse than in-person classes. Is that true or is it just a perception because of students missing campus life? Well, in many ways, perception is reality for those, for those students who were surveyed, right? And in many cases, those students were those who had planned to be in person in a classroom with a live professor. And so having to fall back 
to a, a makeshift online uh, format is not as positive. We agree with with those students. You know, three quarters of the students that surveyed, uh, I'd say we, we are very much in agreement with. Um, but on the other hand, there is a need, particularly in this environment in which families' incomes are are affected. And, uh, and opportunities may not be there to meet other students' needs academically in an online format, in the distance learning way. And so we've got uh, an asynchronous way to do that in which they can study at their own pace, at their own time. Um, we've got a synchronous way they can do that we're, we're experiencing right now. And we're optimistic that we'll be able to get everybody back in the classroom as we're planning for as our, our, our top choice. So we, we agree with the students, quite frankly. And you talked about financial difficulties because of COVID-19. I know a lot of students are out of work right now, and some students and their parents complain about their tuitions increasing. Many feel they should be reduced because they're not on campus. Now, some are still being charged housing, meal costs, other fees. So what should be done about that, Tim? Well, I would say that, that each school needs to take that from their own context and, of course, work with each family in their context. And, and it's, so it, it starts with an open conversation, an open communication about what the expectation is and whether or not that expectation is realistic and can be met right now. Finally, the Axios survey, it shows 13% say they'll take a gap year or a gap semester if distance learning continues in the fall. I'm sure that's a big financial concern for colleges and universities. What do you think is going to happen? And what should be done about that? Yeah, I think that that's very likely to happen, quite frankly. And in some cases, it may not be the worst possible outcome. Um, we put a lot of pressure on students to come immediately out of high school and go into uh, their academic undergraduate programming and right into a job very quickly. And maybe they're not always ready to do that. So a gap year may be very appropriate for some. Uh, for some others, not taking on a, a tremendous debt burden at this time of uncertainty is also a particularly wise choice. But I think that's going back to what I said earlier. I think that's why it's important for, for colleges to be able to work with students and families where they're at. Around the world, the COVID-19 pandemic is being used as an excuse to persecute Christians. In Pakistan, NGOs are reporting that some Christians, only 2% of the population in that Muslim-majority country, are being denied government rations of food and other supplies. Voice of the Martyrs Global Ambassador Peter Yashik told me, we shouldn't be surprised that officials are denying Christians relief during the coronavirus crisis. Christians will always be marginalized and they will uh, receive either less uh, of this uh, care and support or none of that. And so that is uh, in no way surprising to me that Christians will suffer even more during this COVID-19 situation in Pakistan. And Nigeria is another country of concern where Christians suffered death and persecution at the hands of Boko Haram terrorists and other Islamic militants. Yashik tells of a recent attack in Plateau State. This is something really uh, very horrible because uh, Christians, uh, I mean, all people in Nigeria are under a certain quarantine and they are not allowed to leave their houses. But yet, despite all of that, situation, uh, there was a village in a plateau state near the capital of the state, Jos, recently attacked uh, by militants, uh, uh, either from the Fulanis or Boko Haram, you know, and uh, they uh, attacked and killed uh, uh, many villagers, among them uh, children. 
you know, infants uh, and even pregnant women. You know, one of the pastors for that area actually said that uh, uh, there's more Christians being killed in Nigeria than dying of this COVID-19 infection. And you thought you had it bad with COVID-19. More than 1,000 Christians were killed in Nigeria last year alone. Yes, they have greater concerns than a viral outbreak. These are just two examples of what Christians are going through during the crisis. So what can we do to help? Yashik spent 15 months in prison for his mission work in Sudan. He knows how important it is to pray during a time such as this. As we are locked down in our houses and we uh, uh, cannot go to our offices to work, we work from home, uh, we cannot do our normal leisure activities that we would normally do. Uh, you know, in one sense, we are also in a certain kind of uh, house arrest or prison, and we have the choice now. We can uh, choose whether we will listen to these more or less uh, the same news or unimportant news or frightening news, or we, we will spend time uh, in prayer uh, or in our intimate relationship with the Lord. And it can be certainly done through through reading uh, his word uh, and through prayer. And I think uh, this is one of the things that I have learned in prison, you know, how important prayers are. And I made a commitment, you know, that when I will be released, I will be encouraging people to pray for our dear brothers and sisters. When I was complaining about the difficulties of my situation, the Lord put in front of my spiritual eyes pictures of those persecuted Christians that I have taken personally in many countries uh, where Christians are persecuted. And he reminded me, you know, that my persecution was nothing compared to the price and pain they, they have to experience and pay in their own lives. Yes, let's pray for wise decisions for our leaders during this COVID-19 pandemic, also for friends and families, God's protection over them. But let's not forget our brothers and sisters in Christ, those in oppressive countries around the world who are suffering even greater persecution during this global pandemic. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.